podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, this is not a summer special. I announced three. We've done two. This is not one of them. Uh, I don't say this is an extra podcast. That's, that's a bit grand. But what it is, it's a catch-up of listener correspondence ahead of the next special, which will be a fan special, and details of that coming up at the end of the podcast. So this is really to just catch up with the emails, because we like to acknowledge all the emails that we get sent, and uh, and also look ahead to the start of the season, which is <laughs> which is upon us with the Championship League. Um, and, uh, and particularly, we've had quite a few emails about the match-fixing uh, scandal, as you'd expect. So I'm going to deal with those. Let's get straight into it. Let's just dive in. Uh, Alex writes, there's a little bit of praise for me here, if you can bear it. But uh, he, he says... Uh, I just wanted to drop a quick message to say how great the podcast is, especially your recent analysis of the gambling scandal. Now, this, of course, is the uh, the business with the 10 Chinese players, two of whom have been banned for life from snooker, which is unprecedented. Liang Wenbo and Li Hang and various others have had different lengths of bans. Alex says, uh, you have a very humane understanding of the situation, a great depth of understanding regarding the broader context, and you communicate it so well. Well, that's very kind of you, Alex. Thank you. So some of my earliest snooker memories are of my stepmom and her friends gathering around the TV to see their countryman, James Watanar, play Jimmy White in 1993. And boy, did they gamble, both on the game and also all night afterwards to recoup their losses. Gambling can be so important to socialising and fun, and also, as I later came to, came to experience, disastrous. I think listeners will really benefit from your overview as to the structural issues that shape these young men's choices while recognising that they've also made a choice. Uh, that's very thank you Alex uh, Callum Law I hope you're having a good summer just getting in touch after the band's handed out to the 10 Chinese players although it's clearly not a good thing for the game I'm not as despondent about the situation as a lot of people seem to be while we'd all prefer this not to have happened the snooker authorities have dealt with this in the best way they can bands and fines have been handed out what more can they do for me that is the message that the game needs to send out to the doubters the sport deals with things like this as best it can snooker is a game that over the last 50 years in particular has survived and thrived despite all manner of issues and crises. The game is in a strong place, and with the abundance of great players and ambassadors at the top of the game, I think it can continue to go from strength to strength. Even from a Chinese perspective, I think things are still healthy. A new star in Si Jiawei has emerged, and the man that started the boom, Ding Junhui, is still a top player. Snooker is a superb sport. Long live snooker. Well, I think we can all get behind those sentiments, Sir Callum. Uh, Ina writes have to say, your last podcast was excellent. You covered so many points that I'd previously felt were significant. Thanks very much for your balanced, comprehensive and provocative thoughts on such a difficult matter. It's just so, all so disappointing. Did you feel the bans were a sufficient deterrent for future transgressions? <clears throat> well, I'll answer these points later, but that's an interesting point. Matt Tarrant, thanks for the Dave Shame episode. Great summary for those of us who aren't going to read the full report. I thought one of the several telling lines was that many players knew they could go to Liang Wenbo to bet on snooker matches or to fix matches. If this was the case, my view is that there should, in conclusion, be two clear messages to the players. Number one, just don't get involved, as you pointed out. Clear and simple. Move to Darlington if necessary. Number two, if you hear or know of anything suspicious, then share it with the relevant authorities. Don't be part of what became known in pro cycling as the omerta, a term borrowed from the mafia. Great job by the independent investigation. Sanctions appear proportionate and have taken into consideration the context. Let's move on. The game can't be complacent, but we can learn and move on. Gary Park has a slightly different view. He says, thank you for your most recent podcast covering the match fishing, match 
not match fishing, that would be fine. <laughs> if it was just fishing, there'd be no problem. But it's actually a match-fixing issue and the suspension of the 10 Chinese players for their part in it. I would like to offer a view that I know will be unpopular among many people who love snook as much as I do and indeed know more about the game. While appreciating that punishment was necessary in the wider interest of the game and agreeing with virtually everything you said, it worries me that the tribunal did not seem to consider fully the level of coercion that some of the younger perpetrators may have been subject to and that the penalties handed to them will in effect be as detrimental to their careers as life bans justly received by the two most serious offenders might have been seems to me that the potential gains that they hazarded their careers for were tiny compared to the risks. For example, you mentioned, I think, the amount of money Yan Bingtao might have won by betting on himself to lose was less, less than he would have gained by actually winning the match he wagered on. To me, the most likely explanation for that kind of utterly irrational behaviour is not financial gain, but rather that it's the result of fear and intimidation. It's known that in other sports, organised crime is really behind any kind of nefarious goings-on that affect play and players. So it seems likely in the case of the young players that they may very well have been the subject of serious threats to harm, either to themselves or their families back home in China. Of course, they could not have presented such evidence at their hearings for fear of that very harm. Their reputations will never recover, of course, but in the circumstances, it worries me that players who are not doing wrong of their own volition will be looking at the kind of ban lengths that will make it impossible for them to sufficiently keep their lives together in order to achieve the levels of achievement in snooker that, they've already, that they have already got to. Uh, sports players who are out of the game for a substantial amount of time rarely have other skills or qualifications to fall back on and can soon find themselves spiralling into other serious problems. It would be a massive tragedy if that happened to any of these talented young players who, given support and opportunity in the future, might very well rehabilitate and even redeem themselves. <clears throat> Thank you, Gary. And Dan uh, has also written on this subject. I'll come back to all these points later, but we'll just rattle through the emails we've had on the on the match-fixing issue. Dan says, following on from your excellent podcast on the Chinese players' bans, I'd like to ask for your thoughts on snooker's relationship with gambling. From reading the World Snooker Tour report, it's clear that a lot of the players involved were gambling at casinos as well as on their matches. In much the same way football's relationship with, with gambling was scrutinised after Ivan Tony's ban, does the same review need to take place with snooker? I should start by saying that I enjoy a bet and I'm not looking for a ban on gambling. But I stress there's too much gambling advertising within snooker and a sport as a whole in the UK. How many snooker events are now sponsored by bookmakers? Apart from the world's, I can't think of a non-betting company sponsor, e.g. who are dual bets. Online nobodies, no registration in the UK, and yet they have sponsorship of tournament after tournament, all whilst promoting crypto-based gambling. Is this where snooker authorities really want to grow the game? How much longer can snooker take money from gambling and seemingly no other sponsors aside from Kazoo? I know snooker's long history of players playing money matches. The hustlers of the past are often spoken about with great affection. But now we have players with nothing other than with nothing to do other than gamble in their spare time away from events that are effectively solely sponsored by gambling companies. I get the feeling that uh, thanks, Dan. I get the feeling that uh, there's a couple of words missing from that last sentence. But anyway, I think we got the point. Uh, finally, on this, Alpha Bonzi, uh, I'm gassed down with the kids, that the Snooker Scene podcast is back, but less about the results of the match-fixing inquiry. The first of my usual three questions does not excuse the actions of the players involved who have brought disgrace upon their sport, their country, themselves. However, number one, do the WST send out mixed messages about betting being so tied up with the gambling industry themselves? And on a less depressing note, I hope, number two, and this is this is nothing to do with the, uh, the betting, but these are the questions you ask, it does tie into last week's uh, book special. He says, is Patsy Hula the greatest player no one ever saw? 
Well, as we know, there's a whole book about that, The Natural by Luke Williams, and you can go back and listen to last week's podcast. All the details are there. And number three, is there a golden opportunity with Luca Brussel's world title success to resurrect the Humo Masters? Well, the Humo Masters was uh, an invitation made in Belgium. I think it, it's pretty obvious that um, you know people feel there should be a tournament in Belgium, uh, but it's not as simple as just sort of snapping your fingers and, and it falls from the sky. You know, there's a lot of work and indeed money that needs to go into to that. Obviously, Luca's success, you know, it will be predicated on the back of it, but he's not going to play every match in that tournament. <laughs> um, but he would be the, the carrot, certainly. But anyway, let's hope so, is the answer. Um, Alpha concludes, thanks as always, and let's hope with the lifetime bans, lessons are learnt. So a lot of points raised there by various correspondents. Thank you for everyone who e- emailed in. I think that the sort of the general feeling is, is one of sadness that this happened. I think people in general are happy that this was taken seriously. The report which uh, I think is 58 pages, is very detailed. It was independent. The WPUSA, as I said on the Day of Shame podcast, actually asked for longer bans. They didn't get them. But what's happened subsequently is in China, the Chinese Billiards and Snooker Association, they have acted. And they have actually extended the bans on some of the players, particularly uh, Yan Bingtan, Zhao Xingtong. In terms of playing in China, their bans have been extended. Now, how that's, that's going to affect... Um, them coming back onto the main tour, if that's if something that will happen in a few years' time, I don't know, because presumably there will be tournaments in China then that they won't be able to play in, but they could potentially play in Britain. It's a little bit um, unclear that, whether the CBSA actually have the power to stop them playing at all until their own ban is up, or whether the WPBSA ban um, is the one that they, they're going kind to of be working off. So we'll, well, I guess we'll find out in due course. But th- they've acted pretty decisively. It's a bit of a statement from them. Um, and there is talk of criminal charges potentially as well. So it's a very serious matter. But to answer the points that have been raised, this business of the someone someone mentioned, uh, I say someone. Let's 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 see who it is. Uh, Ina, um, do you, he says, did you feel the bans were a sufficient deterrent for future tran- transgressions? I think the whole issue of deterrent in general is kind of overplayed. Put it this way: in America, every year there's thousands of murders, and they have the death penalty. So clearly, that's not a deterrent. Um, you know, for, for people who want to kill people. Um, people have said, and people are very passionate, quite understandably, about this subject, and players in particular, because it's their livelihood. So Sean Murphy has said, for example, he thinks all of these guys should just be thrown out of the sport. Well, that's a perfectly valid opinion from someone who's played snooker honestly all his life. However, clearly, if you look at the Stephen Lee um, case, he was banned for 10 years, and this is actually mentioned um, as part of the WPBSA submission, they said, we banned him for 10 years. Clearly, that wasn't a deterrent because this match fixing subsequently went on. Um, to stop any crime, basically, you have to deal with the environment. It's not just the people. You can you can throw these people out, but the environment was a factor. It just was. Young guys from an, a completely different culture in a completely different country ended up banding together because a lot of them didn't speak English, looking up to older players who led them down into a pretty dark place. That's what happened. <laughs> that's a fact. And that is, that's why I said in, on the last podcast that I feel they need someone over here basically looking out for them and looking after them. Uh, not putting them under curfew by any means, but being there as an authority figure to help them, but also to, to stop them. You know, going down the casino every night and going into areas that are not going to be beneficial to their careers. Just throwing them all out, that's not going to end match fixing in snooker. It's going to stop it from them, 
but the culture around it hasn't changed. Um, so I, I'm not convinced about deterrence. I mean, you know, look at the crime figures. I'm not quite sure it really tallies up at all. Um, we have here about, uh, Matt Tarrant says about um, the players should come forward if they've got information. I think that's quite an important point. Um, it's difficult, I think. It's difficult when you're a young player, you might be aware, maybe dimly aware, that there's something happening that shouldn't be. You might not have hard evidence. Um, to what extent do you put your neck on the block and sort of dob in your pals, basically? However, the players do have a responsibility. If, if players feel that this is wrong and, and they should think it's wrong, then they have a responsibility, if they get wind of it, to come forward. Um, there's a rather sort of depressing sort of prevailing view amongst some, well, some men, let's be honest. It's a rather toxic view that it's it's actually worse to grasp someone up than to actually be involved in criminal activity to start with. That's complete nonsense. That's an old-fashioned view that doesn't hold water to me. I think if you're aware of these things, it's your responsibility as a player to, well, certainly to act in some way. I'm not saying ring the police, but, you know, it's your profession. You... you the success of snooker and the success of you are linked. So, sort of see no evil, speak no evil and all that, hear no evil, I'm afraid doesn't watch. Players do have a responsibility, if they know something's going on, to try and clean the sport up. Um, and as you say, as Matt says, you know, that you can share it with the authorities. It, it, it doesn't mean, you know, you go on news night. You can, there are anonymous ways you can contact the authorities, but it's the players are responsible for their sport as much as anyone else. Uh, so a couple of people have asked about, Dan asked and Alpha asked about the, the, the relationship with gambling. I think it's an interesting point um, because it is, again, it's part of this whole thing. The sport takes money from gambling. It encourages gambling, actually, doesn't it? Because it advertises the wares of gambling companies. It's partly, I'm afraid beggars can't be choosers. The fact is the sponsors are not queuing up to sponsor snooker. Um, I think sort of the the higher end companies they look at snooker's audience and they feel it's not people with lots of money to spend. Whereas golf and cricket and tennis and rugby union and those sort of more middle class sports are associated with people who have more money to spend on their products. Um, I don't blame World Snooker at all for taking money from uh, gambling companies. Bet Victor again are sponsoring eight tournaments. They've got the bonus again. That was a big story last season when Robert Milkins won it at the Welsh Open. That was good publicity for snooker. Um, their money's as good as anyone else's. And, in, and, and let's be honest, if Will Snooker refused the Bet Victor money, how, who sponsors those tournaments? Do those sp- tournaments even take place if there's no one stepping forward? Um, dual bits, I'm not absolutely aware of exactly how that, that operates, that whole crypto thing. But, you know, again, um, they came forward to win a sponsor the game. It, how responsible is it of World Snooker to turn them down? Some people would argue how responsible is it for them to accept their money, but, you know, they're a business. Um, how responsible is it to say, no, we don't want it, actually, we, we'll just, we'll, we won't have a sponsor. People would soon be criticising them if these tournaments didn't have sponsors. So it's difficult. It's worth saying this, OK, and a lot of people, I don't think, would even know this. Snooker was invented initially as a gambling game. You literally, in India, the British Army officers who invented snooker, they invented it to wager. Every ball that was potted in the sort of primitive version of snooker, people bet on. Is he going to pot that ball or not? We'll have 
whatever amount of money on it. So <laughs> the very roots of snooker are steeped in gambling. And it's never gone away. You know, in snooker clubs, there's been all sorts of side betting and, and money matches and all that stuff has gone on. Um, and now we have, in our sort of more sanitised era, as, as one of our correspondents pointed out there, in Britain at least, and I can only really talk about Britain because that's where I live, we are awash with adverts for gambling. The the ease of gambling has increased, as I said last time. You know, you can do it on your phone. You don't even have to be even concentrating. You can just sit on your sofa, watching sport on TV, betting on your phone. In some ways, I think it's too easy. Um, because let's be clear, it's a ruinous activity for many people. It's ruined lives. It's, it's, that's a fact. You won't meet a poor bookie. Every bookmaker in Britain last year made a profit. Um, that certainly cannot be said for gamblers. So it's an activity that comes with a health warning. But, you know, I believe in freedom of choice. If people want to do it, that's up to them. And I don't think snooker is in such a great state that it can actually afford to turn down money from betting companies. If we had 20 alternatives that wanted to come forward and put money in, fine. But we don't, I'm afraid. That's just a fact. Um, And, you know, these companies have enabled a lot of tournaments to go ahead that maybe otherwise wouldn't have. But it's a, it's a difficult one, and you can't separate out what's happened, the match-fixing, from the culture of gambling around the sport. The two are linked, clearly. They're linked. Um, and that, that is an issue that, you know, maybe needs to be looked at as well. I don't think you can just sort of say they're not, they don't go together. They do, obviously. Um, but as I say, snooker was invented as a gambling game. And, you know, we still have that kind of, that culture around it. It's funny, funny actually, that uh, Ivan Tony was mentioned there, the, the footballer who's been banned for an extraordinary amount of gambling he did. He was actually invited to the Masters <laughs> this year in the midst of being suspended. Will Snooker thought it was a great idea to invite him to the Masters, which I, I have to say I found odd. Um, and I, there was a, well, there was a Will Snooker board member who agreed with me. He was absolutely appalled by it, actually. But anyway, we move on. We move on. Let's talk about uh, some happier issues. Uh, ah, yes, Addy in Germany. First of all, thanks for being back on the air again to fill the summer void. We all suffer to a certain degree. It's very much appreciated, even though the second summer special was a little depressing due to the nature of the topic. Just on a point of order there, Addy, and this is a small thing to pick you up on. I apologise, but... Uh, that was that wasn't a special. That was that was just a um, a bonus podcast. It's a small point. I should never have mentioned it. <laughs> we'll continue. He says, I, I, "I sincerely hope we can go back to near normal now and ignore the fact uh, that that this won't be the last we hear on the probability of future attempts to fix matches, at least for a while." So let's delve into much more comforting subjects, such as snooker books, many of which take us back to long lost good old times. Gambling was still very much a part of the game. Ah, and we're back on the subject. I'm so sorry. He says, I've been an avid reader of snooker books for years and have therefore been appointed librarian of our little club. At the moment, we have a collection of 66 books on snooker and its players, always looking to expand on that, which is not always easy because most of it is not in print anymore. I currently have a list of over 30 books I'm trying to acquire, which is not easy when you're outside the UK. Since the majority of our books have been published in the 70s, 80s and 90s, I'm very happy about the resurgence of writing about snooker at the moment. Current snooker players seem to be rather cautious when it comes to publishing their own stories. The most prominent exception being Ronnie, who seems to have a new book 
out every other Wednesday. <laughs> so thanks to all non-player writers for putting in the work. I only just started reading Brendan Cooper's Deep Pockets, so I can't comment on that yet, but I have just finished reading Luke Williams's book about Patsy Hillihan. I have to say it was a delight. And I do not only say that because Luke was kind enough to personally mail me a signed copy to Germany. It was a really engaging read, especially because I, probably like most of the readers, have never seen Patsy play. I find it unfathomable that there's no video footage whatsoever of probably one of the most gifted people ever to pick up a cue in anyone's archives. I can easily go to YouTube and watch Joe Davis in 1927, but not a single bit about Patsy's decades in the game anywhere. The fact is simply astonishing to me, and so is the ability to write a whole book about a player the author never saw play. After a lot of babbling, finally my question for Luke, how did you do it? After reading the book, I feel like I watched him play, although I didn't, and neither did you. There are good books on snooker, and there are others, this one is good. Well, that's, I'm sure Luke will be happy to hear that. Uh, I could have asked him that last week, of course, when he was on, but uh, I think if you listen to the podcast, which I'm sure you have done, uh, you can hear the passion that he's had. I think that <clears throat> for, for Luke it was, uh, and all the guys actually came on last week, Brendan Cooper, you mentioned there, John Skilbeck, it was a labour of love writing those books. It was passion projects, and passion projects usually um, produce the best work. You know, they're not doing it because they've been told to, they're doing it because they want to. Um, Addy concludes, thanks to all the writers and journalists for covering this sport. I, for one, am very grateful for your work. Best summer wishes from Germany. Well, and to you, and I may as well announce now, because um, we're on the subject, I am actually, myself, starting a snooker book. It won't be out for a couple of years. I can't say any more about it. Um, but uh, <laughs> in two years' time, you'll hear a lot about it when it comes out. But I've, I'm starting, I've literally started it uh, in the last few weeks. And, uh, yeah, that's all, that's all I'm going to say on the subject. Uh, David Burney, uh, similar subject here. He says, it's a great podcast on dealing with the dark cloud that's come over the game of snooker with all the match-fitting drama. David's in Canada, of course, in our correspondent in Canada. He says, let's hope all it's all settled and we can move forward to keep this sport going in the right direction. As I'm writing to you, the natural is en route to me. Hopefully by the time you have your podcast with Luke Williams, I'll be knee-deep or even finished his book. Hi, Luke. It was great to meet you in the press room at Sheffield this year. I look forward to jumping into your book. Keep up the great work. Hope to see you there again next year. I wasn't fully aware of Brendan Cooper's deep pockets, but when I returned from Sheffield this year, my good buddy Sam Tonning has purchased the book for me. What a read. Very magical to weave the game and the philosophical system together. Dropping quotes from William Blake was a true delight, as one of his quotes has always stuck with me. I must create my own system or be enslaved by another man's. What about that? He says, the jewel of the book for me was the chapter on colours. I, I, now, I love that one as well. I, I tell you, uh, just jumping in here to David's email, I don't know why, because it's not even funny, really, but I did laugh quite quite a long time. He described, Brendan described the brown ball as the captain of the bulk team. <laughs> the brown is the captain of the bulk team. It's not, it's not actually funny, but for some reason, it really struck me as a, such a lovely phrase. Anyway, uh, David said, uh, yeah, the chapter on colours, so playful and imaginative to give all the balls on the table their own personality. I felt... As I was reading the book, I could hear Brian Eno's ambient music playing in the background. Would it be an ending? Or music for airports that could be heard? Who knows? And perhaps some new music as Eno could write music for snooker. Now, that would be a dream and wonderful to the ears. Anyway, great book, Brendan. If you go to Sheffield next year, it'd be great to meet you and talk more about the soulful journey into snooker. Great to see more and more snooker books coming out. In addition, there are some interesting films that have snooker evolving around them. And why not? It's such a beautiful game when it's photographed. Keep up the great work and enjoy your summer, Dave. Also, would you ever be interested in doing a global show? I know you have the fan special, but would you entertain the idea of bringing on guests from all over the world to talk about snooker in their areas? Well, I mean, 
Yes, is the answer. Um, I'd have to organise it, which is always uh, the drawback of these things. But I think I'll, I'll put that under a low heat for future. I think it would be really interesting, actually, to hear, because this, you know, it's still very sort of British-dominated. I know a lot of the topics we talk about. Because the game is, let's be honest, it's still a professional circuit, it's still based so much in Britain. But I think that's a good idea, but one for the future. Maybe we'll uh, we'll look at that in, in due course. <clears throat> um, now, a completely different subject here from James Irwin. Long-time listener here from Northern Ireland. Thanks very much for your podcast. In particular, I wanted to thank you for your excellent assessment of the Just Stop All protests during the World Championship. I agreed with every word of your impassioned rebuttal of their actions. And your recent special pod on the outcome of the match-fixing investigation was also very well handled. Well done. Well, thank you, James. The Just Stop Oil, um, as, as we record this on a Sunday, Sunday Times as a story today, uh, with one of the initial benefactors to Just Stop Oil, telling them to just stop. He said that their method of protest is actually not working. Now, that's a side issue. We're not we're a snooker podcast. But he, he described it as performative and having no, no real effect. Um, so, yeah, interesting. Anyway, <clears throat> let's get back on, onto it. James says, my question for you today is regarding the takeover of BT Sport, Eurosport and Discovery Plus by TNT Sports under the Warner Brothers Discovery conglomerate. Do you have any intelligence on how this will affect Discovery Plus subscribers? At the moment, we pay a very reasonable £60 for an annual subscription, giving us ad-free coverage of all the tournaments covered by Eurosport. As a cycling fan, too, I'm very happy to pay this amount and get good usage out of it, both through my smart TV and mobile devices when needed. My concern arises from the fact that TNT are also taking on BT Sports coverage of the Premier League and European football tournaments, including the Champions League. A BT Sports subscription is currently in the order of almost £30 a month. My worry is that TNT will put all of its sports coverage in one subscription package, thus forcing snooker fans to have to pay for football if they want to continue to access the excellent Eurosport coverage without ads. Furthermore, they may do away with the Eurosport linear channels, for which you do not need a Discovery Plus subscription altogether, or put them behind an expensive paywall. This would obviously be a terrible outcome for snooker fans who are not interested in football, do not wish to pay for it in order to access snooker coverage. My Discovery Plus subscription runs until February 2024. It'd be interesting to see how TNT handles Discovery Plus subscribers. Any light you can shed on it would be greatly appreciated. Hope you have a great summer. Thanks again for all you do to bring us great coverage of snooker. Well, thank you, James. I mean, two points here I would, I would, I would just uh, introduce. I'm not, I don't speak on behalf of Eurosport or Discovery or, or you know, that company. And also, I don't really know, <laughs> which is maybe more, maybe more uh, important. But what I understand is, okay, and, and this is what I understand, in the sort of near, in the near future, so from uh, the start of the new football season in August, essentially it will work on the same lines as it did before. BT Sport was a, a sort of premium channel you pay for, and then I believe there were other channels that were less expensive. So, I think that's what will happen. There'll be a, a sort of premium channel. If you want to watch the football, you pay what you pay. Eurosport continues as normal uh, for now. Uh, so the snooker will be on Eurosport. Discovery Plus, I believe, will be unaffected by, by this in the short term. Now, I can't speak for three years from now. I don't know. But in the short term, I don't, I don't see any change to the arrangements. I don't, you put it this way, you wouldn't have to pay the extra, um, you know, money that you would pay for the football channel in effect to watch the snooker. And actually, it was pointed out to me. Um, that this could benefit snooker because uh, with the with the merger between Discovery and uh, BT Sport, having Premier League football is a great uh, audience builder. So, for example, they could show on Saturday lunchtime a Premier League match and then maybe go to a you know afternoon of snooker and they'll have a built-in audience 
which will be bigger than normal because they've they've been watching the football. So that's an option. Um, but anyway, uh, in the in the short term, I don't think it'll be affected. But obviously, you know, in the future, who knows? Uh, Discovery Plus. I've said it before, and it, I I know I'm sort of biased because I do commentate for them. But I genuinely think it's a, it's great value, as you've said yourself, because you get to watch every table of every tournament uninterrupted. There it is. It's all there. I mean, it's, it's an absolute dream. And here's the thing, okay? We're 30 years on from Ronnie O'Sullivan winning the UK Championship. One of the great moments in snooker. He was 17, youngest ever ranking event winner, beat Stephen Andrew in the final. Historic moment. How many people do you think watched that live on television? I can tell you how many. None, because it wasn't live. The final session of that, if obviously if you're Preston Guildhall, you'd have seen it in, in the flesh live. But it was not live on television. The first session was the final session. Do you know what time it started on BBC Two? This is absolutely true. The final session of that final, the coverage began at 22.11. 22.11, it finished at 10 past one. That was then. Anyone who thinks TV coverage of snooker was better then has got rocks in their head, frankly. It's far better now. The choice that you have now, obviously, some of it you have to pay for, but that but you have to pay for everything. That's not, you know, I don't see why TV should be any different. But the, the the option to watch snooker now is better than it's ever been. Fact. Okay? And there's different platforms and different broadcasters and people can decide what they want to watch. Championship League, for example, starting on Monday, is live on something called Via Play Extra. We'll come on to that later. But that will be live on television for 21 days. You know? What a service. Um, so there's these different... Uh, you know, different ways of watching, but but the fact is, you can watch now. Whereas in 1993, there was no red button, there was no internet to watch on. Uh, it wasn't on Eurosport, so basically, you had to wait till 20 to 11 <laughs> to watch the UK Championship final. It seems incredible now. Uh, anyway, I, I hope that's helped in some way, James. But I think for now, you're okay. Um, what will happen in the future? Who knows? Mark Williams, but not that one. Firstly, as always, I'm enjoying your summer special podcast. Between your efforts and the other podcasts available, it keeps the snooker bugging me happy over the summer quiet spell. I'll do the old joke here about who, who knew there were other podcasts, shall I? It wasn't funny the first time, but anyway, I'll uh, do it one more. Uh, Mark says, a good few times now I've heard you mention the niche aspects of snooker, its associations, and most recently the niche books from your latest summer special. It got me thinking, there must be some diehard fans with niche interests due to the nature of the snooker beast within I wonder who may be the fan with the strangest, most niche interests, hobbies or life. I'll start by telling you my two interests in life. Snooker and building and flying medium-sized hovercraft for use in the sea. I'll read that sentence again. I'll start by telling you my two interests in life. Snooker and building and flying medium-sized hovercraft for use in the sea. I'm sure this will be easily trumped, so let's hear from great snooker fans and their weirder than usual existence. More niche the better. I have to say, Mark, I think you're, <laughs> that would take some beating, actually. I think, you know, building hovercrafts, it's quite niche, I think. I, I, put it this way, I don't know anyone else who does it, but anyway, do take up uh, Mark's uh, suggestion to let us know what your, what, <laughs> what your hobbies are, if they are in that, in that sort of oeuvre. Uh, he says, another thing I'd like to mention is the latest WST YouTube clips following Rob Walker and his absent friend's journey. They've been just great, and I've really enjoyed seeing the players, and yourself, of course, having a casual chat with Rob. What he's done is a great and worthwhile effort and has stirred a few memories of my own, as I'm sure it has many others. What a great guy. I can't wait to watch him reach Land's End. Well, of course, uh, this was sent just before that. Uh, Rob has finished his journey, as we, you know, as we knew he would. 
Um, yeah, it's an extraordinary effort. Uh, it's about a thousand miles he's uh, travelled. Um, done with trademark enthusiasm and positivity. Uh, he's raised so far over 30,000 for the charities, and I'm sure that money will continue to go up. You can still donate on his Just Giving page. If you go on the Just Giving, the details are there. For Jesse May, Children's Hospice, and the Brain Tumor Trust. So, yeah, uh, incredible effort. Um, and here's the thing. When, when I met him, we had a, a drink and a chat that was recorded on, on World Snooker Tour's YouTube page. And then we were going to go into to eat. And, uh, well, I won't say it was, but the, the other the, the other member of the party said, oh, well, there's a Wagamama's nearby. We can walk there. Well, nearby turned out to be nearly two miles. Now, now that, in normal circumstances, that's fine. But when you've been cycling hundreds of miles <laughs> across the country, you don't really need to be walking that far. But Rob, you know, did it with his usual enthusiasm bounded on you wouldn't know that he'd been undertaking this physical activity um so a great effort from him and uh yeah you know you can't fault it can you and, and i'm sure he would like to thank all the people who donated and all the people who came out as well he's i know he met a lot of people along the way not just from the world of snooker but uh from the world in general so uh i'm sure he'll be resting up as we speak finally this week mark and john before the new season starts, we thought we'd write to tell you what a wonderful snooker season we've had. We have finally completed our own triple crown, having spectated at the Masters, the UK and the Crucible this season. Having been to the Masters for the last ten years, we were surprised by how much more we enjoyed our experiences in York and in Sheffield. We also braved the snow in Brentwood, got to Milton Keynes for the mixed doubles and British Open and to Newport for the Welsh Open last March. Uh, whilst we... Clan did know, I think, wasn't it? Uh, the Welsh Open? Anyway... Uh, whilst we agree with many of your correspondents that the seating could be more comfortable and the merchandise is poor, our overall experience has been fantastic. Top quality snooker, friendly interactions with other fans, players and pundits, and we even got to meet our favourite commentator and podcaster in York. Uh, that's me, by the way. <laughs> and as promised, your picture is now on our wall in our new snooker room. There is the other reason our snooker year has been so great. We finally built our very own snooker room in the garden. The sacrifice was a loss uh, of garden of 22 times 18 feet to allow our queuing room but we now have a full-size table and our walls are full of photos of us and all the players we've bumped into this season we have 15 world champions amongst our collection and every single encounter has been friendly and memorable isn't that nice to know by the way just cutting in that every encounter you've had people have taken the time to speak to you that's that says a lot about the snooker world actually we you know we hear the bad stuff but that's actually a really good thing to hear i think uh, they say, uh, what an incredible bunch of pros and ambassadors for our sport we have. Sometimes snooker gets a bad press, and there's always some niggles about how things could be better. But what a year we have had. We consider ourselves lucky to be passionate about a sport full of so many genuine and lovely people. Thank you again for the podcast. It's really the icing on the cake and makes us feel part of a big snooker family. Looking forward to the new season starting soon. Well, that's a lovely note to end on. Thank you for that, and uh, glad you had a good season. And, uh, yeah, and you've teed it up nicely because, of course, the season starts... Well, I'm recording this on Sunday, so it starts tomorrow, Monday, the Championship League. One of my favourite events, quite genuinely. Uh, partly because it's been such a long break uh, since the World Championship. It's a good, been a good break. But you're sort of uh, you're ready to go back. It's like going back to school kind of thing. Um, you know, you, it's nice to see everyone again. Some of the people you mentioned there. But one of the reasons I like the Championship League is you get to see players that actually, in a lot of other tournaments, are not sort of foregrounded, unless they play a top player. There's only two tables. Um... And it's an opportunity for some of the low-ranked players to actually show what they can do. And, and of course, there'll be new, new tour players we'll be seeing, including some of the younger players like Stan Moody, Liam Pullen coming on, some of the players from around the world who qualified. So it'd be exciting to see the new players. 
and of course the established ones. And uh, you know, we get treated so well by Matchroom. They really run a nice event. It's a nice atmosphere. And uh, yeah, so it's 21 days. Um, there's some players who are not in it. Mark Allen and Luca Brissell, one and two on the one-year list. I suppose they get the feeling there is they don't need the ranking points. Luca won it last year. And I, I don't think it should be underestimated that uh, that was a contributory factor to what happened at the World Championship because it got him in... Uh, well, first it got him a tournament. It got him some confidence um, with the trophy. But it got him in the World Grand Prix, which helped get him in the Players' Championship, um, where he... Uh, he performed well and just he played in a lot of high profile tournaments and I think that that definitely was a factor in in a small way but in a way to him being successful at the World Championship uh, but they've, they're sitting it out okay fair enough Mark Selby lives in Leicester so he's got less excuse but I believe the dates just a problem with I think the last week if you were to get through you couldn't actually play I think on the last week or something like that so he's not in it Ding Junhui I'm presuming he's back in China fair enough the one I'm surprised well there's two I'm surprised about John Higgins I mean, John obviously is a legend. You could sort of, in normal circumstances, understand him not playing, but he needs the ranking points. You know, for the first time since he joined the top 16, 28 years ago, he's actually in danger of dropping out because he's got big points coming off this season. He didn't get past a quarterfinal last season. So on the one-year list, end of season, he'd be out of the top 16. I mean, that could change, but every point is vital. Um, so I'm a little surprised, but listen... You know, it's a free country. He can do what he likes. Jack Lazowski has not entered. I don't understand that. You know, Jack is still waiting to win a tournament. He's 14 in the world. So, again, ranking points he needs. Um, I, I don't get why people take a break. I mean, Neil Robertson is doing the opposite. He, he missed the first three tournaments last season. And he never really caught up. This season, he's making a statement because he's playing on day one. He's playing on Monday. And that is a bit of a statement. I'm back. I'm really going to be sort of going for it this season. I don't get why people take a break at the start of the season. They've had a break, haven't they? It's two months since the World Championship. <laughs> how, how much time off do you need, really? And the thing about the Championship League, it goes on a long time, yes, 21 days, but you're only actually required to play three days in that time. It's not a lot of effort, really. So I'm a little surprised, but listen, it's a free country. People can do what they like. Uh, look forward to seeing... There are some big hitters in it. Ronnie O'Sullivan, Joe Trump, Mark Williams, Sean Murphy, etc., etc., are in it, but... Uh, some of the others there have sat it out. That's up to them. But uh, put it this way, if the week before the Crucible, one of those guys, you know, is a thousand points off the Crucible seeding, they might look back and think, oh, I wish I played in the Championship League. Possibly. Uh, as I say, in Britain, you can watch it on Via Play Extra. Now, that's Channel 420 on Sky. It used to be free sports. Um, it's no longer free, but it is... Well, it kind of is free. Um, and this goes back to the Eurosport discussion. Via Play... I believe it's a Scandinavian company, and they have uh, all sorts of sports, football, have live football and all sorts of things on there. But anyway, some of the channels you have to pay for, this is a free channel, but you have to have Sky, I think, to watch it in the first place. Um, so you can watch it on there, but you need Sky in the first place, and I'm sure Virgin and the other platforms as well. Um, Matchroom Live has it, uh, and... There's, there's you have to go on the Matchroom website, the Championship League website, for the exact broadcasting breakdown, but it's there. And uh, one of the um, sort of differences with the Championship League is we have a lot of players who are playing in the event who come in to commentate, guest commentators. And we've got some uh, interesting names this year who are doing it for the first time. Chris Wakelin, shootout champion. Alexander Ersenbacker, who's back on uh, through the Q School. 
Uh, Ross Muir, who, who won the European Championship to qualify. Um, and some returning commentators, people like David Grace, um, Peter Lyons, Lee Walker, Gary Wilson, Rod Lawler, uh, Joe Perry, various others as well, Dominic Dale, Stephen Hallworth, and myself and Phil Yates. So there's, there's a lot of voices you'll hear. And uh, Stuart Bingham, he's doing a day. So, you know, that, that's a good, good uh, aspect to it, I think, to, to get the views of current players. Uh, anyway, it all starts on Monday. I'm looking forward to it. Um, people like to have a go at it, but people like to have, have a go at everything. That's, that doesn't really mean anything. When it was on free sports, it was the most watched sporting event they had all year. They got more viewers than Spanish football. That's a fact. So, as ever, the actual... <laughs> The actual sort of online comment doesn't match the reality of what's happening, you know, in the real world. Anyway, I'm looking forward to it, and uh, it all starts on Monday. Now, <laughs> that's it for this week, but uh, the, the third summer special will be in a couple of weeks. Um, I wish I'd never started all this summer special stuff, because, you know, they're just all the same, aren't they, really? But anyway, it's going to be in a couple of weeks, and it's a fan special. Now, in some ways, every... Edition is a fan special because it's your your views, your emails, and uh, my sort of reaction to them. But very specifically, what I'd like this to be is essentially what can be improved. Okay, what can be improved about the game, about the fan experience of attending tournaments, the fan experience of watching tournaments on on television. What can be improved? It's not it's not intended to be listing a load of negatives. It's actually the opposite. It's intended to be constructive. It's ideas to make snooker and tournaments and attending tournaments better. So positive ideas is what we're looking for um, that we can then feed back to World Snooker Tour and say, look, this is what fans have said they think could be better. And obviously, you know, look, there are certain things that are obvious. Number one, have more tournaments. Well, I'm sure that's occurred to them already, but, you know, that's a financial thing. Number two, tickets can be very expensive, uh, but again, that's kind of financial realities, supply and demand. Um, I'm sure, but I'm talking really more about ideas that you might have, maybe for specific events, um, side activities that could enhance your experience of going to them. What is the, put it this way, what's the reason for maybe not going to tournament? What, what puts you off about it? And what would, um, improve the, increase the likelihood of you going? So positive ideas is what we're after. What could improve from a fan perspective? And oh, well, I'll give you three, okay, from, from, from myself, just, just to get the ball rolling. Number one, I think more could be done to reward the loyalty of fans. We have a lot of listeners who will go to a lot of snooker during, during the season. So why not say, if you book tickets to the World Snooker site, if you booked, for example, 10 different days during the season, you get a day free at a tournament. I don't mean the world final, obviously, but, you know, if you booked, picking the number out of the air, but if you booked 10 different days across the season, you come to a tournament, let's say the Welsh Open quarterfinals or whatever tournament you can get to for free as a reward for your loyalty. Um, that's just one idea um, to acknowledge the fact that snooker fans pay a lot of money to support the sport. Um, number two, I think one event that's not moved on really is the shootout. It's not really evolved um, very much. So, and the first couple of afternoons, they're in, they're in weekdays, they're a little bit muted compared to the more raucous evenings. So why not actually prioritise those first two afternoons for a family audience? 
rather than having sort of a few drunk men shouting things out that aren't funny, why not actually have school parties? We want the game to appeal to the next generation. This is the probably the best tournament to do that because you're not sat for three hours watching the same two people. It's a rapid succession of players. It's, it's a lively atmosphere. It's a, it's a lively format. So that's a perfect opportunity to target the next generation. So why not actually say we're not going to sell alcohol? We're not going to sell alcohol for those first two afternoons. You can sell it at night, sell it at the weekend. Those first two afternoons, we're going to get coach parties in, the kids from schools from the local area, from all around the country, and make it about a young audience, a family audience, come with the parents, whatever. Make it a different atmosphere, and you might you might create new fans there who would never normally come to snooker, never consider it, but might be hooked from that day on. You don't know, but at least try it, you know? The, the, again, this is about trying to come up with ideas to, to make things better. So that's number two. Number three, I think a greater use of actually what I'm doing now, which is podcasting um, or YouTube to get a bit more interest during events. So this is not between events, this is during events. I was on the train the other morning, it was rush hour and it was packed and just I had to stand, but that, that, that's not the issue. The issue is I was sort of naturally because you're so close to people looking at pretty much everyone was on their phone and a lot of people were watching were catching up with things like football highlights catching up with sports news various clips that are easy when you're when you're sort of stuck for half an hour or however long your commute is 20 minutes little bite-sized highlights are perfect but snooker doesn't do that you know the day after let's say you have the first day of the masters the next morning monday morning there isn't a little highlights package you can watch, the shots of the day, interviews, or throwing it forward to preview you know, Monday's matches. There just isn't that. And it seems a massive missed opportunity, whether that's a YouTube clip or whether it's a short 10, 15-minute podcast rounding everything up and then throwing it forward. It strikes me as a pretty obvious thing to do, and a lot of sports do do it, but snooker doesn't. Um, I mean, the season starts tomorrow. Where, where's the World Snooker podcast? Why, why isn't there a podcast from World Snooker telling everyone that the Championship League's on? At this time of year, not everyone knows. Not even snooker fans will be aware that it's on. Why aren't they? Why is it left to people like me and Nick and Phil and Shabnam and all the other people that do podcasts to advertise these things? Why aren't, where is the World Snooker podcast launching the new season? So I think that's an area that needs to be looked at because the thing with podcasting is, as you will know if you subscribe to this one, once you subscribe, and of course you can unsubscribe, and there'll be people probably already doing that as I speak, but once you subscribe, it just comes into your feed. So you're not asking people's permission, it's just there. You want to listen to it or not, it's there. It's easy to listen to, as I say, if you're on your way to work or, or whatever, in your lunch hour, whatever, whenever you listen to podcasts, it seems to be a very easy way to promote the sport. And I don't really see why they wouldn't do that, certainly in the bigger events. It just seems really obvious thing to do but they don't do it same with like a little highlights thing five minutes you know best shots five best shots of the day best interview clips and here's phil yates to tell us about the matches coming up later whoever you know whatever in fact phil he used to do a highlights thing for world snooker before the pandemic he um he did a daily highlights he picked all the shots he wrote the script and he voiced it and it was excellent he went all around the world um and then there was a shorter version available online it was very popular but it got cut, I guess, for financial reasons, which, you know, is always always a drawback with these things. All I know is the World Snooker Digital Media last season earned 
uh, world snooker a lot of money, a lot of money. But where does that money go? <laughs> it's not, you know, it needs to be reinvested back into more content to make more money next year, surely. Um, so anyway, these are three ideas. Fan loyalty, reward it by giving free tickets to people who, you know, reach a certain benchmark in terms of how many tickets they bought. First two afternoons at the shootout, prioritise families and young audiences. And number three, greater use of podcasting and YouTube clips to get a bit of interest going during tournaments. They're my ideas. A lot of people will have others. What I would say is try and keep it reasonably brief. We don't want long essays because we want to get as many ideas in as possible. It'll be in a couple of weeks. So July the 9th, I would say, would be uh, when I'll be recording it. So a couple of weeks. How can tournaments, how can the fan experience of snooker be improved? Very simple question. Um, we welcome all ideas and, yeah, let us know. And you can let us know at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Thank you for listening. Um, I'm looking forward to the Championship League. And, uh, yeah, snooker's back. The season's back. We're proud members, meanwhile, of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcast, Talking Snooker. Uh, Nick and Phil, you do that. They're, they're now signed up. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> That's it, really. They're, they're now signed up. Good luck to them with that. Um, yeah, so uh, that's it. Um, I didn't say goodbye-bye last week on, on the match-fixing one. It seemed inappropriate. But I'm going to say it now. Until next time, goodbye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. <laughs>